G'day mate, 40 here. So if you want to get ahead of the news, if you want to get underneath the news, one of the, the best sources at times is Chuck Johnson. Now, Chuck Johnson is sometimes very wrong, but sometimes he's very right and way ahead of the curve. I'm thinking about the San Francisco Bay Area tech executive, Bob Lee, right? He was murdered approximately April 5. And Chuck Johnson wrote that day about Bob Lee's murder. Bob Lee liked drugs. Bob Lee bought drugs. Bob Lee also liked orgies. And no one else was reporting this. Now, finally, the Wall Street Journal is catching up on this story. So now the Wall Street Journal reports, before his killing, tech executive Bob Lee led an underground life of sex and drugs after the cash app founder died in a stabbing. Some were quick to blame San Francisco street violence. It was more shocking so he says in certain wealth tech circles it is known as the lifestyle we'll have to ask our friend uh <laughs> elliot blatt about that whether he leads the lifestyle it's an underground party scene featuring recreational drug use and casual sex on the afternoon of april 3rd a monday the partying took a dark turn so bob lee was out uh with with this woman's she was married, right? So let me find some of the uh, the best links here. <laughs> Man, I woke up at 3.45 a.m. just uh, raring to go. So here's the uh, big Wall Street Journal report, all right? And so he was apparently having an affair with the wife of a leading uh, San Francisco Bay Area plastic surgeon. And then... He was uh, hanging out with the sister of Kaza Mamini, right? Oh, Kaza Mamini is the, the wife of a prominent plastic surgeon. And Ms. Mamini's older brother confronted Mr. Lee about her. Was she taking drugs? Was she doing anything inappropriate? Hours later, the brother Nima Mamini stabbed, stabbed Bob Lee with a kitchen knife, left him to bleed out in the street. And he was arrested on suspicion of murder. The death transfixed San Francisco. And the episode laid bare risk-taking behavior in the upper reaches of Bay Area society fueled by cocaine and designer drugs. Now, libertine though it may seem, the party scene is governed by an unwritten code of conduct. There's still an understanding of consent and boundaries. If someone gets drunk and handsy, they get excommunicated very quickly. So I have uh, some familiarity with uh, underground scenes. And the underground sex scene, I reported on it for many years on my blogs. And yeah, sometimes people do maintain a sense of boundaries, but often when it comes to the most primal of emotions, people get over their head. And is there any human emotion that, that men in particular get in over their head more often than lust? And so this idea that, uh, oh, we're all you know very concerned about boundaries you know, I'm a little skeptical about that because for, for some people like me, the the sex is just such an incredible rush that it's really hard to maintain a strong you know, moral boundary. Now, the accused killer was known to use drugs himself, but he was not part of the elite crowd. So he was described as aloof and introverted. Unlike his wealthy and glamorous sister, he was prone to brood on the sidelines of parties. So... It sure seems like many of the most horrible things 
that are done in the world are done by people who are not connected to other people and being a loner right being disconnected from others seems to be about the strongest predictor of you know horrible behavior antisocial behavior like if you have people you love and who love you you are much less likely pain and so you tend to act with the acknowledgement that uh, you don't want to cause pain to the people who are most important to you. So this is the glamorous younger sister of the accused murderer. So Bob Lee was casually sleeping with this woman, 37, all right, somebody's wife, right, the wife of a leading plastic surgeon. And three years prior to that, Bob Lee was hooking up with a woman that Mr. Mamini, the accused murderer, had also dated. So... This is a cauldron of intense emotions that's uh, very likely to put you in trouble. Am I a libertarian on drug legalization? No, I'm not. I don't have really strong opinions, though, uh, as far as legalization. But I I would not describe myself as a, a libertarian in that area. So some of Bob Lee's friends say they were worried in recent months that he was getting in over his head so when you are having sex with a wide variety of people and doing illegal drugs right you are much more likely to get into trouble than if you're staying home with your family so one acquaintance says he was hanging out with people who weren't great people there are a lot of swingers cheaters and liars in that crowd so elliot you'll have to talk to us about the lifestyle so he was close to his wife even though they were separated and uh, on May 5, his wife held a private memorial at San Francisco's Ferry Building, a gathering that began with shared remembrances and ended with an all-night dance party. <laughs> an all-night dance party as part of the memorial. And uh, Bob Lee took ecstasy, ketamine, cocaine, and attended all-night raves all around the world. Right, that kind of life is going to put you in contact with some very dangerous people. Once the club offered to admit people for only $5 instead of 20 if they went in with no pants, Mr. Lee obliged. He went in pantless for the $5. So uh, <laughs> one friend talks about going to Acapulco with Bob Lee and that at the time Bob Lee had several girlfriends. In addition, there were several other women he was sleeping with at the same time, but Great to know he was always respectful towards them. And we all know that we really appreciate a man who's always uh, respectful towards them, even if he's sleeping with a lot of other women uh, at the same time. So apparently he attended parties and he used drugs because he liked to share experiences with a lot of different people from all walks of life. He loved to exchange ideas and apparently body fluids. He was attracted to the underground party scene because it provided him with different experiences and different connections. So apparently people in the lifestyle, they're high functioning. Good to know. They're very intelligent people. Great to know. They're incredibly talented. There's not much in our world for them to do. So Adam Smith, who wrote the 1776 book, uh, Wealth of Nations, he made the point that there are a lot of vices that uh, rich people can indulge in you know, with no apparent downside but if someone of the lower classes, you know, someone a little less disciplined, indulge, that is very likely to absolutely ruin their life. So, yeah, there are vices that high IQ, 
that very intelligent, very thoughtful people can engage in, and they can get away with it. But uh, people who are a little less disciplined, right, people with, say, maybe not the same resources and connections and habits and, and community, right, th they're much more likely to get into trouble. So the lifestyle, right? San Francisco, people who engage in various sexual activities with different partners, underground party scene. Started with the hippies who are not sober people trying to expand their brains. Then the tech people came in and gentrified the lifestyle like they did everything else. And so apparently the people hanging around Bob Lee were less playful and more rough around the edges. So yeah, if you primarily spend time in Orthodox Judaism, you're going to be with a different crowd than if you primarily spend time in bars and if you primarily spend your time in the lifestyle. So I'm sure there are good people in the lifestyle, but you're dramatically increasing the chances that you'll be having intimate interactions with people who are not so good. So this woman that he was hooking up with, this married woman, Ms. Momini and her older brother, were born in Iran to a family that is Zoroastrian. They moved to the U.S. with their mother, a dental assistant. They were very close. And the murderer had several scrapes with the law. And uh, <laughs> one, one mutual acquaintance said he was hanging out with uh, this woman, Miss Lee, and her brother kept shooting him threatening glances. And finally, this guy says, look, bro, I'm gay. I'm not a threat to you. Obviously, the accused murderer had some major insecurities going on. So following a breakup with a longer-term girlfriend, Bob Lee told friends he was casually sleeping with Ms. Momini, the wife of a prominent San Francisco plastic surgeon. Ms. Momini was married, but their relationship had possibly been in jeopardy. Do you think so? Her husband is a prominent San Francisco plastic surgeon. He has an Instagram page with more than 30,000 followers showing the results of nose jobs and facelifts. Happy International Women's Day to my wife and all the amazing women I work with every day in our office. And he shows a photo of his wife in a tank top. So apparently at the night of the murder, Mr. Momini confronted Bob Lee asking whether his sister was doing drugs or anything inappropriate. Bob Lee assured him that nothing inappropriate had happened. And then the two men left the Millennium Tower at 2 a.m., got into the car together. Investigators later recovered a text from this woman, Ms. Momini, to Bob Lee's phone sent after he and her brother had left her home. Just wanted to make sure you're doing okay because I know Nima, her brother, came way down hard on you. Thank you for being such a classy man, handling it with class. Love you, selfish pricks. And uh, the murderer seems to be really cut up about it. <laughs> there he is. <laughs> He's like, you don't, you, don't, you don't mess with my sister, man ask you if anything inappropriate was going on, if she was doing drugs or anything. So, no, I don't think he was hooking up with the, the brother. But uh, people tend to be protective of their sisters. All right, uh, here's some thoughts from Richard Spencer on the Hispanic... ...format of some kind. This is not involving politics. And the Proud Boys did act as a kind of army in J6th. So they were there 
They were involved in the planning of it. They were talking about violence. They engaged in violence. They had a distinct purpose, which was to stop the certification of the vote for president in order to keep Donald Trump in power. They were engaged in a seditious conspiracy. Now, it's one that had no chance of working. It's one that was buffoonish as hell. All of those things might very well be true, but it doesn't take away the fact that it was a conspiracy nevertheless. So again, we have this situation of, you know, optics. Let's put a Hisp an Hispanic in, you know, in charge as our front man. No one can call us racist now. That doesn't really work. But, but also something different. The Proud Boys were easy to make fun of, but at the end of the day, they were an army on behalf of some purpose, whether that purpose is Trump, whether that purpose is mass violence, etc. And it's just very curious that we have these Hispanics, Hispanics that are clearly of a certain kind of personality type. They're attracted to outrageous ideologies. They're involved with drugs in the case of Terrio and crime. They are just outrageous people, and they're leading these white supremacist armies that are creating chaos in the United States. So you might be able to see where I'm going with this one. So what do we make of the fact that Garcia was blogging at a website called OKRU? Now, I had never heard of this website until, you know, yesterday. And the name of the website is Odno Klasniki. So it's a Russian website. And uh, it just roughly translates to classmates. So it's basically Facebook plus WordPress or something. So why would he be using this kind of site? And it, it, it's a non-rhetorical question in the sense that I, I really don't quite know the answer, but it does lend itself to some conspiratorial thinking in this regard. You know, did, did you not want to use, I don't know, Tumblr or Facebook or is it WordPress available for free? Why are you using this Russian website that I've never heard of, that no one's ever heard of? Who was in that website with him? Who was in his chat discussions? Who was in his DMs on that website? It's strange that it's Russian, isn't it? So what I'm suggesting, I, I, I don't know if this was a kind of Russian plot. And real quick, we, we're reminded of these, these weird little tidbits. Like the Buffalo shooter was in touch with a former FBI agent. What does that mean? What was going on there? Was he being surveilled? Is the FBI agent just a simpatico with his ideology? What's going on there? So what's going on here with this OKRU? You could make the argument that there are forces out there that are able to locate and target people with serious mental disabilities or a certain personality type, that dark triad type, those people who are psychopathic and feel entitled. And okay, some uh, thoughtful, reasonable analysis there from Richard Spencer. All right, here's my main topic, and it was inspired by reading a 2012 essay by Rick Polstein, who is a journalist and historian on the left. He's got a long essay here, The Long Con, Mail Order Conservatism. But I'll begin with something from Slate by Justin Peters, November 8, 2021. He writes, Why are right-wing radio hosts still being such jerks about COVID? It's about more than partisan warfare. And let me just say, I'm coming to you live right now from the Relief Factor pain-free studio. If only Half Galician was here, he would enjoy it. That uh, I'm about to go DEFCON 3 on supplements and conservative hucksters. <laughs> so... On Monday, November 1, Dennis Prager began his popular radio show with a very strange boast. 
I rarely say I did the following. It's not my style, Craig has said, but I believe I am responsible for the CDC announcing the following, that if you have natural immunity, you are less immune than if you have the vaccine. So Prager was referring to a Centers for Disease Control and Prevention study released October 29, 2021, which found that the immunity conferred by full vaccination is more effective than the natural immunity gained by having had and recovered from COVID-19. Good news, right? Well, if you welcome the CDC's findings, you're almost certainly not in Dennis Prager's target demographic. So one reason I think that the conservatives and the right wing on the popular level have been so awful with regard to COVID is that much of their funding comes from therapeutics, from supplements like the Relief Factor Pain-Free Studio. So the CDC's conclusions are in line with the scientific consensus on the efficacy of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, and they directly contradict Dennis Prager's contention voiced over and over again on his long-running nationally syndicated show that natural immunity to COVID-19 is superior to vaccinated immunity. So I don't have a strong opinion on which type of immunity is superior to Prager. The CDC's latest findings did not mean that he was wrong. They meant that the liberal corrupt health agency had ginned up a bogus study to cloud the debate and specifically silence his voice. So either Prager is right here and the CDC engages in really bad epistemics or Prager is wrong and he's engaging in bad epistemics himself engaging in epistemic sabotage, meaning trying to discourage people from seeking out sources of truth from the establishment. So I believe that the CDC and the FDA and the, you know, every orthodox official source is deserving of scrutiny. And I also believe that uh, dissident and fringe voices are deserving of just as much scrutiny. So I stand right in the middle between, say, the elite orthodox consensus and the you know the dissident reaction, which is to distrust anything put out by official sources. All I did was open up to you, my audience, Prager said, referring to his advocacy for natural immunity. I had no idea that I would shake up the nest, assuring his audience that he had done a lot of homework on COVID. <laughs> so a lot of a lot of people talk about this. And one thing I've noticed is that usually when people tell you that they've done a lot of something, it's usually some kind of compensation. Not always, but it's like telling someone, you can believe me, bro. I'm very honest, bro. You know, I've done a lot of homework here. And Prager highlighted an Israeli study from August, a study not yet peer-reviewed, had many limitations that ought to make any prudent person think twice before citing it as definitive. But Prager weaved a fantastical counter-narrative as a way of underscoring a central point that the CDC study in question was a dirty, rotten lie. To some of you, it is stunning to say the CDC is lying. Prager said, to me, it's like saying the sun shines brightly where there are no clouds. So I certainly do think that our public health authorities have engaged in misinformation. For example, they tried to promote everyone getting a flu shot. Back in 2005, I believe there are abundant supplies of the flu shot and people weren't getting the annual flu shot and so the CDC pushed to gin up these numbers, exaggerated numbers of how many people die from the flu, you know, 27,000 a year or 98,000 a year. And these are all guesstimates. I mean, do you know anyone who's died from the flu? Can we even name any famous person who's died from the flu? No, I don't think we can. I don't think you can. So the CDC certainly engages in misinformation, deliberate propaganda at times. Uh, but that doesn't mean that doesn't also do some good work.
Okay, so why would the CDC rush out a false study co-authored by more than 50 people? Well, remember when the Biden laptop came out and there was this statement signed by, what, 41 leading members of the intelligence community who said that the Biden laptop was classic Russian disinformation? So just because a lot of people sign on to a study or a statement doesn't mean that it's you know, credible. So why would the CDC rush out a false study just to neutralize a random right-wing radio host? Why would Prager presume calumny and conspiracy in the agency's motives? And then here's the key question. Why are so many right-wing talk show hosts still being such dicks against COVID measures? So the state... Okay, let me scroll down here. So Dennis says, I took ivermectin for the last year and a half as a prophylactic. And I believe that ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and zinc over the course of time would prevent COVID from being seriously injurious to me, Dennis said. And he railed against those fools in the news media who dared to characterize ivermectin as a mere horse dewormer. And then he presented his victorious bout with COVID as clear evidence both of the merits of Dr. Prager's curative elixirs and of the superfluity of the various vaccines. So by proving ostensibly that his ivermectin use was what prevented him from dying from COVID, Prager hoped to demonstrate that he was once again privy to the real truth that the liberal establishment is determined to suppress. So remember, the whole ethos, the whole business model for syndicated right-wing talk radio is that you're a victim, that our elites are out to get you, but we are here fighting for you to try to get you the, the real truth. And are Machiavellian. They're, they're ready and willing to engage in some sort of violence, maybe even violence for its own sake, because it's fun for them. That there's an ability to locate and target those types of people, and then there's a, an ability to some degree to activate them. You probably heard the term stochastic terrorism, and the way that that is usually used is that Ann Coulter will make some outrageous comment at CPAC, like, if the Republicans don't shape up, we're going to send the death squads after them. And 99.9% .9 of people hear that either, you know, dismiss it, think it's hilarious and great, or think it's horrible and whatever, but they're not going to really do anything. But there's that 0.01% that treats that as a call to arms and will actually engage in kinetic action in the real world. So it's a kind of actuarial view of terrorism. You're not directly paying someone to do an action. You're, you're kind of throwing out a wide net. You're kind of crowdsourcing, as it were. But there's maybe another way of thinking about that. And, you know, yeah, Ann Coulter can say right-wing death squads or something, but you can also really directly and more immediately and more effectively engage people through direct messaging, through camaraderie, through grooming, you could say, through that kind of false friendship that we all have online where someone who's our friend, who's not really our friend and we don't really know. How many accounts have responded to a tweet of yours and you've responded back and you start to kind of suspect that you're talking with someone from another country or you might very well have just responded to a robot? <laughs> well, we don't have any of that false friendship going on here. I mean, what we share is special. I mean, think about the things that we've done together. Think about the, the times that we've spent together. Think about the things that we have said. Think about how we've opened up and connected with each other. I mean, none of that false friendship is going on here. I mean, this is the real deal, right? None of that phoniness here. Okay, for decades now, the most successful conservative broadcast media sources 
have sought to isolate their audience. And this is the key, right? I think this is true, that uh, right-wing broadcast media sources have sought to isolate their audiences by constantly sowing distrust of any news outlet or official entity that exists outside of the right. And again, I think all official sources and all unofficial sources are deserving of scrutiny and skepticism. Unifying theme is the notion that there are no depths to which the deep state, liberal media, and elite will not stoop to advance their godless, anti-American, and culturally transgressive agendas. They're even turning the frogs gay. So for committed Prager heads, it is perfectly rational to believe, even as over a million Americans have died due to COVID-19, that the media is still suppressing the real truth about ivermectin that the CDC is basically Spectre from the villain in James Bond films, right? Because the right-wing media has spent decades convincing its audience that politics is as conspiratorial and simplistic as a James Bond movie. It is impossible to live in a right-wing bubble, Dennis Prager said on his program. But he surely understands how right-wing media works, even though he can never, never publicly admit it. This cynical strategy is especially frustrating in the midst of an ongoing public health crisis in which lots and lots of people are still dying. And then I think there have been five conservative radio talk show hosts who were you know, anti-vax and ended up dying of COVID. Now, Prager is not explicitly anti-vaccine, but he says Alex Berenson wrote about this. He's the guy was with the New York Times and still he started telling the truth. So deflection is the point here. Dennis Prager and his peers' goal writ large is to get their audience so hot and bothered about federal government overreach and the scurrilous rascals in the elite media that those audiences do not stop to think critically about what these hosts are actually selling. When Prager threw his show to a commercial break, his announcer reported that the Dennis Prager show was broadcasting live from the Relief Factor pain-free studio. The ad gave away the game. Well, I, I do think it's interesting <laughs> that much of right-wing media is financed by th these dubious supplements. All right, so conservative media content has long been underwritten by billions of dollars of advertising for these dubious curatives. So you've got uh, Sebastian Gorker, also endorsed by Relief Factor. Uh, the Joe Rogan experience, right, a haven for various supplement companies looking to peddle their ways. Their ways. Uh, Joe Rogan has speculated that public health measures such as vaccine passports might be bringing America one step closer to dictatorship. So by sowing doubt over the vaccines and crying foul over mass mandates, Dennis Prager and his right-wing peers are running through the tribal script of right-wing infotainment otherizing every idea and institution that could plausibly be considered liberal. They just don't want the liberals' miracle drugs because they already have plenty of their own. I think that's really strong analysis. NPR is funded by the government. What, 1%, uh, 2% of NPR is funded by the government, and the rest comes from other sources? I mean, please uh, correct me if I'm wrong. So I'm not saying, hey, believe the New York Times ignore these right-wing dissidents, right? There are plenty of stories where I think the New York Times is completely wrong. Uh, plenty of stories where NPR gets it completely wrong. There are plenty of times when the CDC has bungled, where the FDA has made massive mistakes, where uh, anti-COVID measures went way too far, right? So 
there's been a lot of uh, a lot of crummy behavior and analysis on all sides. I think a lot of the anti-COVID uh, lockdowns were excessively draconian, right? So I think there are things that the right can learn from the left. There are things that the left can learn from the right with regard to COVID. Get another minute to hear from Richard Spencer as I put together my thoughts. It's not certainly not the majority of times. It's pretty fairly rare, but it certainly happened. You know that there are accounts out there that are effectively bad actors. Some, some of them wear it on their sleeves. Some of them are clearly operative. Some of them, I don't know who the hell they are. It's this interesting um, book called This Is Not Propaganda that was going through a lot of these accounts, actually in other countries outside the U.S., and they would, these accounts would crop up. They would become obsessed with an issue, like, let's say, a protest in Iran, and they'd tweet 100 times a day about this issue, and then they would go dark. And then three months later, they would be obsessed about Donald Trump. And they, you know, tweet a hundred times a day about him. And then they'd go dark for a year. And then this count would be revived. And it's gaining followers all the while. It's affecting people. But it's clearly synthetic. It's not just some dude in Nebraska tweeting his opinions after work. It's operational and targeted. And might this be happening on the level of these psychopaths that are located and targeted? Might someone find... A person like Garcia, someone who's alienated, strange, has a pre-existing attraction to right-wing ideology, and start pushing him, start becoming his friend. And then might he have been activated on the weekend immediately following the conviction of the Proud Boys? I am engaging in speculation, but it is informed speculation, and to me at least, it seems quite plausible. Okay, so one common con that's been put out by the right wing is this terrible Dinesh D'Souza documentary, 2,000 Mules, which has been pretty thoroughly debunked. Is it? Than any other group, including white males. The truth has finally been exposed, 2,000 Mules, the explosive new movie from Dinesh D'Souza, exposes the evidence, it's quite powerful actually, about what happened in November of 2020. Witness for yourself the strategy roadmap of those who affected the presidential election. Thousands across the country are attending the nationwide theatrical release. Now you can also watch a special virtual event from the comfort of your own home on May 7th. Watch on any device with a web browser. Gather wow. friends, family, and skeptics as well. But don't miss it. See the movie that President Trump calls a real blockbuster and participate in a live audience Q&A with Dinesh D'Souza, Eric Metaxas, Larry Elder, and others. Showtime begins 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time on May 7th. The only way to get tickets to this event is to visit 2000mules.com. That's 2000mules.com, the number 2000 for this one-of-a-kind virtual event. Not available to buy at theaters. It's only at the number 2000mules.com, sponsored by Salem Media Group. It's fat. Salem, Salem Media Group is uh, Dennis Prager's syndicator. Okay, let me just uh, get caught up here. Senator J.D. Vance on one more reason to control the flow of illegal immigrants breaching America's borders, America's homeownership becoming more expensive with the influx of millions crossing illegally right now. On Friday, President Biden officially lifted Title 42, the successful Trump-era border policy which allowed rapid expulsion of migrants. 
illegal migrants. The Border Patrol Union calling the massive surge that ensued the worst sustained disaster they've ever seen, adding that President Biden is solely responsible for this humanitarian crisis. Border agents have been apprehending more than 10,000 illegals every day since Title 42 was lifted, and housing them uh, is at overcapacity. So the administration directed border agents to just release the migrants into the population until a federal judge on Thursday evening blocked the administration from implementing that policy, which would have allowed for the release of migrants without court dates, sparking outcry from several states. Joining me right now, two of the premier law enforcement officials in the country, Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody and Texas Attorney General. Okay, I just want to play a little bit of a review of uh, 2000 Mules just to talk about how crummy this, this movie is. Okay, before we jump in, this video is going to be controversial. I'm well aware that a hefty chunk of my viewership skews Republican, it skews conservative, and more importantly, the nature of what I do on this channel, generally speaking, attracts a much more skeptical mind. Highlighting fraud, exposing scams, evaluating businesses, crypto, video games, you name it, that's fun for me, but the underlying attraction to these topics is a pursuit of truth. Over the past five years, the channel has evolved from something primarily aimed at stat compositions and meta mechanics in particular video games to pro-consumer advocacy and eventually investigations into all manner of illicit dealings and shady topics. I've covered situations where companies were blackmailing their customers or where crypto projects and major video game organizations were scamming members. I've talked about hackers who brought entire franchises to their knees, conspiracy theories about AI, corporate buyouts, financial cover-ups, and commercialized social media crime. Over the past five years, the channel has fundamentally changed, and while I do still cover and appreciate video games a great deal, it is far more likely now that you will find, to the best of my ability, I might add, an in-depth look at whatever topics are dominating the contemporary zeitgeist right now, whether they be technological, social, political, or otherwise. In short, I have become motivated by a desire to unravel things that are untrue, deceptive, or predatory, and with that in mind, I find myself with a burning desire to discuss 2,000 Mules. Not because I agree or disagree with its bare premise, not because I want to undermine or disprove its findings, but because this documentary is fundamentally flawed in its production decision-making on such a massive scale, I simply cannot take it seriously at this time. I understand full well that this will very likely lead to a vitriolic barrage from anyone who supports the underlying premise, but please give me a few minutes of your time, because I think that when rational conversations can be had, this documentary will be seen for what it really is a profit-driven, partisan effort to earn as much money as possible that manages to spin a very compelling narrative with zero actual evidence. For those that have not watched the film, 2000 Mules is a documentary from Dinesh D'Souza about fraud in the 2020 election. It was aired in specific time windows on the website rumble.com with a $30 ticket price. It was screened by Donald J. Trump at a private showcase in Mar-a-Lago and is purported to contain evidence, widespread evidence, of voter fraud on a scale we have never seen before in this country's history that would overturn the 2020 election. It is very well edited, it is well shot from a cinematic perspective, but once the dust has settled, once you start to see the narrative arc unfold, and once you realize what the film itself actually contains, it cannot be taken seriously at this particular point in time. So, let's dive in. Again, I understand that the emotional response here for a great many viewers will be anger, but please give me a chance to discuss why I'm saying all this. The film begins with a slickly edited intro that quotes news media, politicians, and public figures, thereby establishing a very simple premise. The 2020 election was stolen by a massive network of fraudulent voters who stuffed ballot boxes, which ultimately skewed the overall results by changing the outcome of key battleground states. 
This as a baseline claim in some form or another has been a focal point for many Americans ever since November of 2020. During that election, deemed to be the most free and fair election we have ever seen in the country's history by a veritable army of talking heads, in my experience, when established institutions are aggressively telling you a congruent narrative all at the same time, it's very likely you should be skeptical. We see this play out historically over and over. But anyway, during that election, more votes were cast by far than any previous election in American history, leading to record voter turnout numbers on both sides of the political aisle, with over 81 million votes for Joe Biden and 74 million votes for Donald Trump. After the election was over, political turmoil ensued. One side claimed that this was the most secure example of democratic election proceedings the world has ever seen, while the other claimed that there had been widespread fraud, illegal manipulation of process, and a multitude of other discrepancies. This divide has honestly only gotten worse at the more extreme ends of the spectrum, and 2,000 mules, in its effort to prove that the 2020 election was improper, has made some very, very bold claims. To explain this properly, I want to go through chronologically and discuss the strengths and weaknesses of this documentary because I believe that deliberate choices have been made to obfuscate just how weak their particular case actually is. To be clear, the methods they are employing are actually excellent, and I would be strongly in favor of further investigation with the same data and system, but the documentary as it stands today is unbelievably bad at showcasing real evidence. Okay, so why is there so much, you know, dishonesty? such a big con in conservatism and to that i want to go to the baffler.com essay november 2012 the long con mail order conservatism by rick polstein and uh, just uh, brought to mind a lot of things that i hadn't really thought of before so he begins by talking about leadership right what, what exactly constitutes leadership and he says the uh, leadership over human beings is exercised when persons with certain motives and purposes mobilize in competition or conflict with others, institutional, political, psychological, and other resources so as to arouse, engage, and satisfy the motives of followers. And one of the best ways to arouse engagement is to provoke these strong, nasty emotions like anger and revenge, right? To try to realize goals mutually held by both leaders and followers. So. When you watch a charismatic person try to seize your attention and win your allegiance, right, that's kind of the intellectual whetstone. So a successful aspirant to leadership is one whose private motives are then displaced onto public objects and rationalized in terms of public interest. So we watch those private motives at work, and the public that they seek comes convincingly into focus. So in 2007, Rick Polstein signed onto the email list of several influential magazines on the right, among them Town Hall, Newsmax, and Human Events. And the exercise turned out to be far more revealing than he expected via the battery of promotional appeals that overran my email inbox. I mainlined a right-wing id that was invisible to readers who encounter conservative opinion at face value. So subscriber lists to ideological organs are pure gold to the third-party interests who rent them out as catchments for potential customers. So who better suits a marketing strategy in a group that voluntarily organizes itself according to their most passionately shared beliefs. So that's how Rick Polstein and millions of others got an advertisement by way of the liberal magazine, The American Prospect, seeking donations to Mercy Corps charity helping starving children in the third world. But uh, the come-ons from the conservative outlets like Newsmax and Town Hall are a little different. Dear reader, I'm going to tell you something, but you must, must promise to keep it quiet. 
You have to understand that the elite would not be at all happy with me if they knew what I was about to tell you. That's why we have to tread carefully. You see, while most people are paying attention to the stock market, the banks, brokerages, and big institutions, right? All right, they have their money in the hidden money mountain. All you have to know is the insider's code, which I'll tell you, and you could make an extra $6,000 every single month. Then uh, Rick Polstein learned of the 23-cent heart miracle. <clears throat> this is the one that Washington, the medical industry, and drug companies refuse to tell you about. Why would they refuse to tell you? Because they'd just be leaving money on the table. I was scheduled for open heart surgery when I read about your product, read one of the testimonials. I started taking it now. Six months have passed, and I haven't had open heart surgery. Then came the good news of the oil field in the placenta. Do you guys realize that there's an oil field in the placenta, and all we have to do is drill, baby? Davidson, editor of Outside the Box, and he has important information to share with you. So if you have shied away from profiting over the immense promise of stem cells to treat disease because of moral concern over extracting stem cells from fetal tissue, pay close attention. You can now invest with a clear conscience. An Israeli entrepreneur, Zami Eberman, has discovered an oil field in the placenta. Come on, did you know that there was an oil field in the placenta? His little company, Pluristem Life Systems, has made a discovery which is potentially more valuable than Prodho Bay. So you can buy shares in PLRS for the low, low price of just 12 cents each. And if you act now, your $10,000 outlay could bring you a profit of more than a quarter million dollars. I mean, you're going to turn that down? <laughs> After Rick Paulson let the magic of the placenta-based oil field sink in, I got another pitch, this coming from Human Events, and it's headed the trouble with get-rich-quick schemes. So this is a come on for instant internet income. The chance at last to put an end to your financial worries, to permanently erase your debts, to pay cash for the things you want, create a secure, enjoyable retirement for yourself, give your family the abundant lifestyle they so richly deserve. And how do you do all that? You bet the over in the Boston Celtics versus Philadelphia 76ers game seven contest later today. Maybe. So we used to call these people snake oil salesmen. But uh, the, the offers of the 23-cent heart miracle seem to work just fine on the readers of the Human Events magazine, where Ann Coulter began her journalistic ascent in the late 90s by pimping the notion that liberals are all gullible rubes. So I wonder what Ann Coulter thinks about the layout of humanevents.com. On the day it featured an article headlined, Ideas Will Drive Conservatives Revival. And two inches beneath that bold pronouncement, there's a box headed, Health news, including the headlines, reverse crippling arthritis in two days. Okay, I'm highly skeptical of any supplement that will reverse crippling arthritis in two days. Another headline, clear clogged arteries safely and easily without drugs, without surgery, and without a radical diet. And high blood pressure cured in three minutes. Drop measurement, 60 points. So it'd be interesting to ask Ann Coulter about the reflex of lying that is now sutured into the modern conservative movement's DNA and to get her candid assessment of why conservative leaders treat their constituents like suckers. So why do we have this strategic alliance 
between snake oil vendors and conservative true believers. Like, why do we have all these tactics designed to corral and fleece, you know, millions of people? And what kind of formation of the mind do we have here? Now, why do conservatives have a hard time discerning where the ideological con ends, the money con begins? Apparently, these tactics all jailed in the 1970s with Richard Vigory and his Young Americans for Freedom. So he was a mail-order specialist. He captured 12,500 addresses of the most ardent right-wingers in the nation. And the list kept getting bigger and bigger. It went to 25 million names by 1980. And he sent out something like 100 million mail pieces a year. He had 300 employees in boiler rooms running 24 hours a day. So it brought the message of the new right to the masses, but it kept nearly all the revenue locked down in Richard Vigory's proprietary control. So one example, he raised 802000 for a client seeking to distribute Bibles in Asia. The client paid 889000 for the service. Then we had all these other people getting in on the con. So you had Lee Edwards, a distinguished fellow in conservative thought at the Heritage Foundation, who would write credulous hagiographies of conservative movement figures and institutions, including the Heritage Foundation, and he co-founded something called Friends of the FBI. And he would mass mail letters signed by the star of TV's <laughs> The FBI, purported to aid the families of fallen officers. The group raised $400,000 in four months till the TV star withdrew his support. Turned out there will be fraud and misrepresentation. So in 2007, the Washington Post reported on the lucrative fundraising sideline worked out by the syndicated columnist Linda Chavez. Right, so in her direct mail career, she used phone banks and direct mail solicitations to raise tens of millions of dollars, founding several political action committees such as the Republican Issues Committee, the Latino Alliance, Sub-Union Political Abuse, and the Pro-Life Campaign Committee. And they promised direct action in the fight to save unborn lives a vigorous struggle against big labor bosses, and a crippling of liberal politics in the country. But less than 1% of the money that Linda Chavez groups raised went into actual political activity. The rest went back into further fundraising pitches, into salaries and perks for Linda Chavez and her relatives. I guess you could call it the family business, Linda Chavez told the Washington Post. Yeah, I guess you could. So, come on, you two can wage the culture war for fun and profit, right? There's a civil war going on, guys. So, here's uh, Heritage Foundation founder, Paul Weirich. Dear friend, you believe that children should have the right to sue their parents for being forced to attend church? Should children be eligible for minimum wage if they're being asked to do household chores? You believe that children should have the right to choose their own family? As incredible as they might sound, these are just a few of the new children's rights laws that could become a reality under a new United Nations program if fully implemented by the Carter administration. If radical anti-family forces have their way, this UN-sponsored program is likely to become an all-out assault on our traditional family structure. So why is it that it seems like you know, every major right-wing media source in the country is underwritten by hucksters? So, I mean, this is just typical scaremongering playbook. And then you get this uh, all-out assault on our traditional family structure, the 1976 pitch signed by Senator Jesse Helm. 
Did you know that taxpayer-supported grade school courses teach our children that cannibalism, wife-swapping, and the murder of infants and the elderly are acceptable behavior? Or the white slavery-style claim that babies are being harvested and sold on the black market by Planned Parenthood. So these looming horrors are almost always built on non-falsifiable foundations like could become or is, is likely to become. So Dennis Prager talks a great deal about the virtues of wisdom the African-American friends of the LAPD. That's what we need. So one of the, the virtues of uh, pitching wisdom is that it's non-falsifiable. Right? There, there's no empirical way of which I'm aware to catalog you know, the, the virtues of uh, one particular form of wisdom. Okay, you too can slay the wicked for the low, low price of just $5 a month from you, the humble citizen warrior. So if you like to divide the moral universe in two between the realm of the wicked populated by secretive conspiratorial elites and the realm of the normal, which is orderly, safe, and sane, for just $10 a month, you too can become a humble citizen warrior. I mean, these are bedtime stories meant for childlike minds, but they fund the conservative movement. I mean, these forces are kind of in the business of producing childlike minds, right? They want to conjure up the most garishly insatiable monsters precisely to banish them from underneath the bed and put you to sleep. So dishonesty is demanded by this alarmist fundraising appeal because the real world doesn't work anything like this, right? The distance from observable reality is rhetorically required, right? You haven't quite seen anything resembling any of this in your everyday life. That's just evidence all by itself. It just goes to show you how diabolical the enemy has become. We're in a civil war right now, guys. The enemy is unseen, but the Redeemer, the hero who tells you the tale, can see the innermost details of these dark conspiracies. Trust him, send him your money, surrender your will, and the monster shall be banished for good. So these are the fundamental workings of almost all grassroots conservative political appeals. Right? You'll get spurious claims of Barack Obama's Islamic devotion, the explosion of taxpayer-supported welfare fraud, the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Right? This is a theology of fear with a strong commercial appeal. Right? This is where retail political lying links up with the universe in which 23-cent miracle heart cures exist just out of reach thanks to the conspiracy of some powerful cabal, a cabal that wouldn't you know it, perfectly resembles the villains of the conservative mind, liberals. So whether the con is selling 23 cent miracle cures for heart disease and ah, blessings, Elliot Blatt, what's going on, bro? Oh, blessings, bro. Long night, long night of living the life, bro. Feeling it this morning. <laughs> Beautiful. What's it like, man? What's it like in the uh, lifestyle? Uh, it's like soaring with the eagles, my dude. Soaring with the eagles. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, no, I don't really see any of that world. Um, I, uh, I'm one of those guys that sulks in the corner, Luke. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to be careful of me because I could freak one day. I could flip out, grab a kitchen knife. So you haven't gone uh, to, when was the last time, honestly, just between us, when was the last time you were at an orgy? Oh, man. Over the 80s. 
Man, you've never been to an orgy. Yeah, I've never been to an Wow. Not for lack of trying, though, believe me. So, are you, what, what do you hear about this lifestyle? Uh, I'm sure it exists. I think there's a strata of people, and these are probably, you know, there's a strata of people that aren't really, their only reason they're into tech is because tech is where the money is. They're not intrinsically interested in tech, right? Yeah. If, if there was an industry in oil, if oil was the industry, they'd be in oil, right? They have no intrinsic interest in it. So it's just, you know, uh, you know well-funded people living the well-funded lifestyle. So the tech piece just drops out completely. And I'm driving. I don't. Is is yeah. my audio okay? Yeah. Yeah. No, you, you sound great, man. So, what are you uh, doing up? You know, so early on uh, Sunday morning, you headed to church. No, I'm I'm working on my Parnassa. <laughs> doing my book stuff, Luke. I'm Beautiful. going to look at thirty boxes of science fiction books. Wow, you're a hustler. Yeah, man. Well, you too, bro. You're you're up early this morning. Yeah, I was wide awake. Wide awake at 3.45 a.m. Yeah, I got up at 4 yesterday, and I did a bunch of housework. You know, I've been really grinding. Something about this onset of summer, you know, gets gets me going. And uh, what's your caffeine usage like? Is it a daily thing? Daily. Yeah, I just had a cup. I had a cup. Feeling good. Feeling good. Yeah, the other day I, I had to pull the uh, uh, nicotine gum escape hatch um had to get some work done and wasn't feeling it so I, I i grabbed the gum half a tab and it was like 90 minutes of pure productivity but um it came at a cost you know it's like very agitating at the same time i felt really weird but i got the work done how much uh, nicotine uh, I, gum did you have uh it, well it comes in little squares and I took a half a square. So now I got the high strength gum. Um, so it's like a half a dose of full strength gum, which would be like a single dose of regular strength gum. If that makes any sense. Yeah, well, Tucker Carlson so, swears by it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Look where he is. Soaring with the eagles, man. Um, so Luke. Um, what about the whole Russia hoax thing? There's been zero accountability for this, right? You know, it's one thing yeah. to, to sort of criticize right-wing media. Um, and, you know, all these criticisms are, are, are deserved. At the same time, there's nobody watching. There's nobody holding the New York Times account. Whose job is that? Well, I think the conservative media has done a pretty good job pointing out that the number one story that dominated the United States for three years was spurious. And so also the Columbia Journalism Review, which is a left-wing publication, published, you know, an exhaustive account of, you know, how poor, you know, how how bad the, you know, Russiagate you know, fixation of the major news media was. So... The the yeah. left and the main you know mainstream institutions you know they frequently get things terribly wrong. Okay, 
And I did a little Googling, and uh, it, it seems like NPR got $77 million from the government, right? Mm-hmm. Which is not huge in today's day, you know, dollars. Mm-hmm. But it's not nothing. And NPR is completely invested in one side of the political uh, divide. And I, I just don't understand why not more attention paid to this and why we can't ex- I mean imagine if the the left wing had to grift to get the, to pay their bills you know what would they be pushing and what they end up pushing is like pharmaceuticals pharmaceutical antidepressants you know if you look at MSNBC every ad seems to be about some sort of antidepressants or insomnia drug uh, and you know what's worse uh, <laughs> that's a, that's a good question. And I didn't, I didn't have an answer. I just looking up uh, on NPR. So NPR, oh, this is influencewatch.org says that NPR receives funding for less than 1% of its budget directly from the federal government, but receives almost 10% of its budget from federal, state and local governments indirectly. Yeah. So if I, if you Google this on NPR, there's like, there's like 22 million here, 22. It all sort of adds up to uh, 77 million by my rough calculation. Yeah. So, uh, so what does that mean? Is it one percent or is it 10 percent? I mean, well, it's it's. Uh, I think 10 percent is closer to reality, but it's not, you know, direct. It, you know, it, it comes through indirect means. But yeah, effectively, NPR probably gets about 10 percent of its. Funding from the government. Yeah. Well, all right. Fair enough. But you know, I, I can get a vote now. I can get a say. Why do I need to subsidize my my opposition? You know, it's not fair, bro. It's not fair. Yeah. So I mean, I agree with all your critiques of the left. There. I mean, I'm not terribly exercised by funding for NPR. It's you know, it's trivial in terms of total government expenditures. Uh, but, but, uh, yeah, the pharmaceutical industry, all right, you know, I think that a lot of what it promotes is bad for people. I think I, it seems to me that the evidence is overwhelmingly using antidepressants, you know, is at best, uh, neutral and uh, pretty much only has a placebo effect and tends long-term use is actively destructive to people. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think, it, I think it has a subtle, more pernicious effect that it makes people unaccountable for what they say and do. Uh, I think it puts, you know, it, <clears throat> you get you get uh, feedback from your body when you're in error, you know, you, know, you get yeah. bad feelings, and these bad feelings are real signals that need to be responded to, and if you have drugs that are blunting those signals, you're getting people that are only really partially human. Now, let, let's uh, let's look at the pharmaceutical industry on net. I would say on net, the pharmaceutical industry does far more good than harm. On net, what do you think? Does the pharmaceutical industry do more good than harm or more harm than good? Uh, well, I, I only have an intuition, and I'm very skeptical of it because it seems like... seems like... <laughs> There's a lot of hocus pocus in, uh, 
you know, the, the drugs they put on there, they put out in the market, it takes a long time for the negative effects to show up. And by that, you know, it may take four or five years. And there's ways of sort of uh, engineering the tests to not detect this. And I think a lot of people are harmed, but I, I can't put any actual oh. numbers on it. 